Hey, we are continuing our series this morning in, uh, in Exodus, and uh, the series is called Call and Response. I hope that you were with us last week. Uh, you'll see in an ongoing way that these messages sort of stack up. One of the great advantages to taking a text and just sort of working our way through it verse by verse is the ability to sort of watch the way things unfold. And so if for some reason you're ever gone, if you're sick, if you're out of town or whatever, I would highly encourage you, not, not because it's me, because it won't always be me, but do go back on the website and watch the, the previous message, the previous sermon, because it will, it will prepare your heart for the things we'll see God sort of unfolding in an ongoing way. So if you weren't with us last week, you can see that online. Um, but we're in Exodus chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, in this series called Call and Response this morning. Now, it may have been a little disorienting to you this morning that we decided to read the text at the very beginning. I want you to understand it sort of in an ongoing way as a church that what we want to do is be thinking about the fact that this entire service, from the time it begins to the time it ends, is an expression of us sort of corporately in worship. And sometimes we kind of get locked into these methods and these modes where a service has to be like, there's a greeting, and then there's a couple songs, and then somebody gives an announcement, and an offering is, and then there's some teaching, and then some songs, and we can sort of start to, um, we can get kind of wrapped up in an outline, like a bullet-pointed list of, a, of the way the service is supposed to go. And what we want to do is sort of break that mindset. We want to break the mindset that says, the service has to happen this way. So some weeks we may start our worship with the reading of God's word. I'll be honest with you, I'm going to give you a heads up here. Some weeks we may start the service with the study of God's word. So for those of you who like to roll in like 20 minutes after the thing started, uh, I, I, you were warned, you know, I'm just saying, you're going to miss some stuff there. Um, but, but know that the idea here is not just to break it up for the sake of like, whoa, this is different and it's not what we're used to, but rather to train our hearts to go everything has redemptive potential. All of it is worship if we train our hearts that way. And it's not about a system or a style. It's about preparing our hearts and recognizing that everything has potential to glorify God. So anyway, that, that's uh, part of why we started the service the way we did this morning, uh, by reading it right out of the gate. Now this text we see in Exodus chapter 2 um, begins and, and sort of makes a transition. In Exodus 1, if you're with us, we saw sort of the background information that the sons of Jacob had established themselves in Egypt, that God had kept his promise, that they'd grown and been fruitful, that that became a threat to Pharaoh, and as a result, he had sort of a four-step plan to try and suppress them. But we saw that in the midst of that cultural rejection, that the people of God were faithful, and more importantly, that God was faithful to his promises. That was sort of the heart last week. In a broad sense, that God was faithful even in the midst of Pharaoh sort of calling him out. This week, we see the, the focus kind of narrow a little bit more, and now we're watching the way God works, not just in a broad sense, we will see that, but we're seeing the way that God is starting to work in a more narrow sense, specifically through a character named Moses. And he's named here in verse 10, as we read earlier, Moses, who will eventually be used by God to deliver the people of Israel from their enslavement in Egypt. This is the beginning of his story. And what's so cool about the beginning of his story is that as we read already, what we see at the beginning of his story is the faithfulness and the compassion, the kindness and generosity of three incredible women. Three incredible women who demonstrated characteristics, who demonstrated a way of living that would not only make a difference in the life of the Hebrew people in that Moses was preserved, but would make a significant difference in the shaping of Moses' leadership style himself. So what we'll see in the lives of these three women are characteristics that we will see later replicated in the life of Moses. 
Not that as a brand new baby he even saw these things or understood them at the time, but as the writer of the book of Exodus, he clearly understood where he came from. He clearly had been told the stories of what his mother did and what his sister did and what his adoptive mother did. And as a result, those characteristics ended up shaping him. We see in this text, it's perfect for Mother's Day, by the way. Happy Mother's Day. It's perfect for Mother's Day because what we see here is the power and the absolute necessity, the influence of motherhood, even for those who aren't necessarily biological moms. Because Miriam in this story is not Moses' mother. Pharaoh's daughter is not Moses' mother. But they have this influence, this, this influence that is motherly. And what we will see before our time is done this morning is that there is an absolute call for each of us and all of us, even those of us who aren't mothers, maybe who want to be kids, some of us who are dudes, who probably will never be mothers, right? That seems unlikely. There is a call for us to manifest characteristics of God that are motherly. That in what we see demonstrated here, we're seeing a representation of the image and the characteristic of God. I want you to see these three characters as we walk through, and we'll start right out of the gate this morning with a character, a woman named Jochebed. Now, Jochebed is not named in this text, but she'll be named later in Exodus chapter 6. That's the name of Moses' mother. So let's just read the first three verses here. It says, now a man from the house of Levi, by the way, his name is Amram. We'll see his name all listed in that same text a few chapters later. A man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. That's Jochebed. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. There are three things I want you to see right out of the gate this morning in the life of Jacobed that would shape the life of Moses in the long term and preserve for Israel a deliverer in the present. What we see first and right here at the beginning of the story is simply a demonstration of hope. You see, in this climate and in this culture, it was hopeful simply to even have a child. They're living in a place where it has been an edict by Pharaoh that all of the male Hebrew children should be taken by the Egyptians and thrown into the Nile. To have a child in that environment, and granted, they didn't have the same ability to preclude childbirth that we have in, in modern culture today, but I hear all kinds of people today who would say, you know what, I don't even want to bring a child into the, into the world. I don't want to have children. I don't want to be a parent because this is such a corrupt world and it's such a wicked place and there's so much pollution and there's so much you know, hatred and bigotry and, and it's such a terrible place. I wouldn't want to raise children. And, and the answer that I have to that is that God, when you say, I don't want to bring a child into this world, well, you've lost his hope. Not hope in the world. I'm not saying you should have hope in the world, but hope in God who created the world who gave us a call to multiply and fill the earth, who gave us a call to raise up people who would also know him and love him. For Amram and Jochebed to bring a child into the earth, and not just this one child, but clearly they brought some other children into the world as well, in an environment of slavery, in an environment of infanticide and genocide, in a place where they got a 50% chance of that child being murdered, if not more, there's a demonstration of hope right out of the gate. Not hope in their culture, not hope in their, ability, in their ability to evade authority, but hope in the power of God to keep his promises. He had made a promise to Abram to make him a great nation, to make him a great nation and to bless him and to multiply him, to protect him and to lead him out of Egypt eventually. And this couple, this faithful Levite couple, 
they have a baby and it's a manifestation and a representation of hope in the promise of God that they would even have a child at all. Not only do we see hope demonstrated in this first section, but we also see faith. You see, it's faith that causes them to hide the child. We see here in this first section, it says, the woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. I've kind of, I mean, it, it kind of makes you wonder what would happen if he was an ugly baby, you know? <laughs> she has the baby, and she sees these fine, so she decides to keep him, because, you know, like, you've, you've all seen some ugly babies, right? Sometimes people come, and they go, hey, we had a baby, and you're like, oh, he looks like he's from outer space, you know? What am I supposed to do here, Right? When it says in the text that she saw he was a fine baby, it's not talking about his physical characteristics. It's not saying that she thought he was beautiful looking. The word that's translated there into the idiom, she thought he was fine or she saw he was fine, simply means that he was precious to her, that he was worth holding on to. I think you could probably say that of every mother that had a baby during this time period and every mother ever, that they see their baby and they never think, oh, my baby's an alien, right? They always sort of think, I gotta hold on to this little baby, right? What we see here is not only hope in the fact that they had a child, but we see faith. It even tells us in Hebrews chapter 11, in Hebrews chapter 11, in the, in the hallmark here of faith, Hebrews eleven twenty three says, by faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. He was precious to them. And so by faith, they hid him and they are honored for that in Hebrews chapter 11. Right out of the gate, in Moses' earliest life, we see hope demonstrated, we see faith demonstrated in the fact that they sought to preserve the child. They hid him for three months until it wasn't possible to hide him anymore. If you've ever had a newborn, you know, even a, even a two-month-old can sometimes be hard to hide, but as they get older and older, they make more noise and they break more stuff and they're stinkier and all that stuff right, as they get a little bit older. And so once he gets past three months, they realize that they're gonna have to do something different. And so not only do we see hope and not only do we see faith in the life of Jacobed, demonstrated in the life of Jacobed, but we also see love. There's love demonstrated in the fact that she takes this baby and she lovingly, I, it's interesting because I think as a kid growing up, I sort of was taught or understood that after three months, Jacobed went, well, I can't hide the baby anymore, so I'm gonna put it in the river and I'm gonna float it down the Nile and we'll just hope for the best. Listen, that's not what's happening here in Exodus chapter two. This is not Jacobed abandoning her baby. This is not Jacobed just sort of giving her baby up to fate. She lines the basket with bitumen and pitch. She makes it watertight. She puts the baby in it, and then Miriam, his sister, stands at a distance to watch what will happen with the baby. This isn't a mother abandoning the baby. She hides it in the bulrushes because that's a way for her to trust her baby to the Lord. To trust her baby to the Lord. She's not abandoning it. And listen, this is something that every parent has to do. There comes a point in every parent's life, if you're a mother here today, if you're a father here today, you know that there is a point in all of our lives where you realize you can't protect them. You can't keep them safe. You can't preserve them by your own strength. And there is a point in the life of every parent where we have to turn them over to God. And that isn't an act of hatred. It's not an act of abandonment. It is absolutely the best way for us to love our children, to turn them over to God. To give them back to God. She not only does that once in this text, she does it twice because after the baby is weaned at the end of the section we read, she hands him over again to Pharaoh's daughter. And she isn't turning him loose. She's not giving him up. She's not done with him. She turns him over and entrusts him to the Lord. Does that sound like mothers you know? 
It does to me. The earliest characteristics that are demonstrated, the earliest life that shapes who Moses will become is a woman who demonstrates hope, a woman who demonstrates faith, and a woman who demonstrates love for her baby by preserving him. There are some theologians who say this isn't an isolated event. There would have been, probably in the reeds around the Nile, hundreds of baskets like this with hundreds of Hebrew babies being hidden. Because they could technically be compliant with Pharaoh's edict. Remember what Pharaoh said? If there's a male baby, you gotta throw him in the river. So technically, if you make a watertight basket and you put your baby in it, when the authorities come and say, what's their baby doing in this basket? You go, well, you told me I had to put him in the river, right? There is some indication that what we're seeing here is a place where there could have been all kinds of babies, all kinds of Hebrew children that were being preserved during the day when their parents had to go to work in the reeds where they would, their noises and their sounds would be masked by nature, by running water, by all kinds of things happening. And then they could be collected again in the evening. It's possible that the mother was even picking Moses up every night. right? She's not abandoning him. She's entrusting him to the Lord. It says, In Isaiah chapter 40, verse 11, he, this is speaking of God, he will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Take comfort in that this morning, that God gently leads his sheep that have their own babies, that have their own children, that God walks with us, that we can entrust them to him as an act of love for our kids and love for God himself. Not only do we see faith, hope, and love demonstrated by Jochebed, but as we move on, we see some great characteristics in the life of Moses' sister as well. Now, I know some of you, you listen to a sermon like this, and it makes you want to argue, right? Everything I say, you're finding things you want to argue with me about. I get that it's entirely possible that the sister who's watching over Moses in Exodus chapter 2 is not Miriam. He could have had multiple sisters. She might have a name we've never heard before. But later in the book of Exodus, we do find out that Moses has at least one sister who has a name, and her name's Miriam. There is reason to believe that this is Miriam who's watching over him, even though it doesn't say that in Exodus chapter 2, that Miriam, who was older than Moses by about six years or seven, was standing off the side. She was young enough that she wouldn't have to go to work, and she wouldn't have to be enslaved in the same way that the adults would be, and so she was able to come and stand and keep watch over her baby brother in the basket, right? The first thing I want you to see demonstrated in the life of Miriam is simply presence, that she's present in his life. You know, it's amazing to me how many people in this world are aching and hurting and deeply longing for somebody just to be with them, just to walk alongside them, to be present, to put eyes on their life. There are so many people living in brutal loneliness and sorrow, people who feel like they're invisible and nobody knows them and nobody cares. And we as God's people have the ability to be present in the lives of those for whom no one else is present. Miriam blesses him simply by being there. And I don't know whether she's there at the command of her mom or if she's there because of conscience. You know, if you've got little brothers, you probably had moments where you thought, I'd like to go down and watch my baby brother get eaten by a crocodile, you know what I'm saying? But what we see is that she's present in Moses' life. It says here in in verse four, his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. She's just present. You know, there are probably people that you work with or people in your neighborhood, people that you walk past every day who just wish somebody could see them. And you have the ability to shape their life. You have the ability to bless them. 
by manifesting the image of God. You see, because he's present with us. One of the great things that Jesus says to us, what? In the Great Commission, he says, I'm with you always. I got all the power and I'm with you. We can manifest the character and nature of God by simply being present with those who are alone. Miriam does that here. Not only is she present, she blesses him with presence. She also blesses him with courage. You see, it's a courageous thing she does. She's standing at a distance to see what will happen to her baby brother. And here comes the daughter of Pharaoh, right? Now, sometimes in a cartoon or whatever, you you get the idea that that Pharaoh had one daughter, right? But that's probably not true. The the likelihood is that Pharaoh had multiple daughters. Um, So this is one of Pharaoh's daughters who goes down to the river to bathe. She's got her attendants with her, and she sees this basket, she sees the basket and she, uh, she calls her attendant to bring the basket to her. She opens it up and it says she sees right away uh, the baby is crying. She has compassion on the baby and she says, this must be one of the Hebrew babies. Now I used to think, well, she probably gets that because of how the baby was dressed or how it looked or whatever. No, 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 look. Hebrews are the only ones who have to put their babies in baskets in the river, right? They're the only ones whose sons are being murdered. So if you see a basket in the reeds and it has a baby in it, you immediately know This probably isn't an Egyptian baby. Why would you do that? She says, this is one of the Hebrew babies. And she has compassion on it. And then look what happens next. Here comes Miriam. And she has courage. She speaks up. She speaks up into a situation, an environment where she could very well have been punished for speaking. She speaks to Pharaoh's daughter, a member of the royal court. I mean, she could have spoken up in this moment and Pharaoh's daughter, had she been so inclined, could have looked at Miriam and said, who's that girl and why is she talking to me? She's meant to be a slave, take her away. She could have been punished for this, but she shows courage. She speaks up in this moment and she speaks out in order to provide some protection for her little brother. You know, there are a lot of situations in our lives where we're, where we're basically content to just be quiet and watch things happen. There is no indication in this text that Pharaoh's daughter meant to adopt this baby or that she had any, uh, any plan from the get-go to bring him into her household or even to keep him alive. It's just as likely that Pharaoh's daughter could have seen the baby, could have felt sorry for it that it was crying, and then said to her attendant or her guard, can you take this downriver a little bit and kill it according to the law of my father? It's entirely possible that she could have said, can you get this baby out of my sight? It's crying and it's messing up the the wash and rinse I'm trying to do here in the river, right? But Miriam, she shows courage by saying, hey, I can go and get a Hebrew woman to nurse that baby. And she doesn't just say, I can go and get a Hebrew woman to nurse that baby. She says, I can go and get a Hebrew woman to nurse that baby for you. For you. What's she doing? She's not just speaking up. She's not just intervening. She's not just providing an alternate route for the life of this baby, but she's also providing protection. She provides presence, she demonstrates courage, and she also influences towards protection. What? Simply by being persuasive. She looks at Pharaoh's daughter and says, this could be your baby. I go and find somebody to nurse this baby for you. We don't have any indication that Pharaoh's daughter would have taken that same route apart from the suggestion of Miriam. And there are people in our lives every day who are walking a a route to destruction. People every day who are walking a road towards bigotry and hatred and selfishness and greed and gossip and envy and jealousy and slander. And you and I can sit and just watch that happen. We can just sit idly by on the shore and watch our coworkers and those we claim to love and the people in our country just head on towards destruction. Or we can show courage and speak up. And not just speak up, but speak up in a way that leads them to a better path 
Note here that Miriam doesn't go, hey, Pharaoh's daughter, you better leave that baby alone because if you do anything bad to it, God will smite thee, you know? That's not the tone she takes. What does she do? She steps in and she goes, this baby could be yours. Wouldn't you like to have this baby? He's pretty cute. I could find a Hebrew nurse. There's lots of those because they don't have babies right now. I could go and find a Hebrew nurse to take care of this baby for you. For you. She makes a suggestion. You and I have the ability to be influential in the lives of those around us by speaking up and directing them onto a path of health, a health of the glory of God, a health towards their purpose, the reason for which they were created. And it doesn't necessarily always work to shout in their face. Sometimes what we got to do is suggest a different way to live. Come alongside and go, there's a different thing you could do here. And that's what Miriam does. She protects the baby by being influential, using her voice to speak up for the baby who can't speak up for himself. Proverbs 31 verse 8 says, open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and needy. Why? Because that's what God's like. Because we're called to be image bearers. Because we're called to walk and live in the likeness of our God who cares about the rights of the mute who can't speak for themselves and the needy and those who need justice. She's courageous. She speaks up in a place where she could have been punished for it. And not only does she speak up, but she provides an alternate path. She protects her brother. She's present and she protects. You know, the the clearest moment of protection in my life was when I was in kindergarten. I remember I was in a private kindergarten and uh, one day my mom picked me up from school and she says, uh, how was your day? And I said, oh, it was really fun. You know, we, we, had, a, we had a story time and then we, did, uh, we got to go outside and we played. We came back inside and we read a book. Then we had a craft and then the teacher slapped me and then we had a snack and we got to go back outside and uh, it, was, it was a really good day. And my mom goes, oh, I'm sorry, hold on, back, back up just a second. She goes, what did you say? And I said, I said we had a snack. And she goes, no, before that. And I said, the teacher slapped me? And she goes, what? And I said, yeah, the teacher slapped me because the vacuum was broken. And she goes, that doesn't make any sense. What are you talking about? And I said, well, after craft, you know, we had, to, uh, we had to clean everything up. So some kids wiped the tables and some kids put away the glitter and some kids stacked the construction paper. My job was to put away the vacuum cleaner, but the vacuum cleaner was broken and I couldn't put it away. So the teacher slapped me. And she's like, I don't know what you mean. And, and I said, well, he, you know, here's the thing. Here's what was happening, just so you know. Uh, the, the vacuum cleaner in my kindergarten classroom was an upright vacuum that had these hooks. And to put the cord away, you had to wind the cord around the hooks. You know what I'm talking about? Uh, at my house, growing up, as a five-year-old, we had what was called a canister vacuum. And the way that worked is it had a long cord that plugged into the wall. And the way you put it away is you just gave it a little tug. Dink, dink, right? And then it went, and it sucked the cord back in, just like the dogs in uh, Lady and the Tramp did with the spaghetti. You know what I'm talking about? So, uh... I mean, I suppose if you put two canister vacs together, it would be very romantic, but uh, that hadn't occurred to me till just now. Uh, so as a kindergartner, I'm in my classroom and the teacher says, Darren, your job is to put the vacuum away. And so I walk over to the vacuum and I grab the cord and I go, dink, dink, and nothing happens. So I stood there. The teacher comes back and says, why didn't you put the vacuum away? I told you to put the vacuum away. I said, well, it's broken. And she goes, it definitely isn't broken. We just vacuumed the floor two minutes ago. Put the vacuum away. And I was like, okay. So I go back over to it. You know, she goes to do something else. Think, think. I tug on the thing. Nothing happens. So I stand there. She comes back. She goes, why am I having to tell you again to put the vacuum away? I've told you twice. Why isn't the vacuum put away? And I said, it's broken. She goes, it isn't broken. Don't say that to me again. Put the vacuum away. And so I, I was like, okay. So I walked over and I pulled on the thing. Still didn't happen. She comes over to me a third time. She goes, why isn't this vacuum put away? And I said, I already told you it's broken. And she slapped me in the face. 
And she said, do not back talk. I told you to put that vacuum away, and that's what I wanted to do. Now, I'll do it myself. Go to your desk. And I, it hurt. You know, I mean, this was a different time period, of course, uh, when the teachers were slapping their kids, I guess. Uh, <laughs> but uh, it made me cry, and I went and sat down at the desk and whatever. Well, I told my mom this story, and, uh, and she didn't really say anything else about it. She was really quiet, and you could tell she was frustrated and whatever, but nothing really came out of that until... The next day, my mom dropped me off for school just like normal. Uh, we go into class. We do the Pledge of Allegiance. You know, the regular opening day stuff. Pledge of Allegiance. Uh, we said a little prayer. It was a private school. And then right after those couple, it was like four or five minutes into the day, there's a knock on the door, right? And we're kind of all excited because we think maybe like a visitor has come. You know, it's like the postman and he's going to talk to us about mail or whatever. And uh, <laughs> so my, my teacher goes and opens the door. You guys aren't going to believe this. Standing at the door to my classroom is my mom, right? It's so weird. And what's even weirder than that, my mom has brought our vacuum cleaner from home. Uh, she's holding our canister vacuum from home. And I'm like, she's going to vacuum here? It's so weird. And so um, she walks in and she doesn't say a word to my teacher. She doesn't do it. She walks right past my teacher. She sets the canister vacuum down on the teacher's desk. And without saying a word, she's looking at my teacher across the desk and she pulls very slowly. She pulls the cord out like this all the way until it's fully extended. And all of us are like, what's going on? You know, the teacher's just standing there. She pulls the whole thing out, and then still, she hasn't blinked, she hasn't said anything. She's looking at my kindergarten teacher. She goes, dink, dink, and he goes, and then my mom goes, boom, and she slapped my kindergarten teacher across the face. Yeah. And uh, (laughs) then she picked up the canister back, and she left, you know? And uh, there's something really incredible about having a mom with a great right hook, you know what I'm saying? Uh, I tell you that story this morning in honor of my mom, who I know will be watching this online. Thanks, mom. Uh, I'm not suggesting at all that you should slap teachers, but I am suggesting that there are people in our world who need protection. And sometimes the way we protect them is by speaking up, by being courageous, by providing an alternate path that they never would have thought of on their own. We see in Jacobed, we see faith, hope, and love. In Miriam, we see presence. We see courage. We see protection. And then thirdly this morning, in the life of Pharaoh's daughter, they don't give us her name, but in the life of Pharaoh's daughter, the first thing we see is compassion. Compassion. She opens up the baby in this basket, Exodus chapter two, and what the baby is crying, and it says she has pity on him. The word could be translated compassion, She cares about this baby. You know, there are people in our worlds who are hurting, people who are sorrowful and sad, who are broken, and all they really want, all they really need is somebody just to care, somebody to listen. She shows compassion, and that will inform the life of Moses going forward. Not only that, she provides for the baby. She says to Moses' mom, Uh, In verse seven, uh, Miriam says, shall I go and get a a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. The girl went and called the child's mother. How cool is this? Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me and I will give you your wages. Not only does she take care of him, but she provides for him. This is crazy that now Moses' own mother is being paid to take care of her baby that was supposed to be murdered. That's the faithfulness of God. The provision The provision, you know, sometimes people need our presence. Sometimes people need a listening ear. Sometimes they need our compassion. And sometimes they just need lunch. 
or they just need some other kind of provision, a roof over their head, or a pair of warm socks, or whatever. She demonstrates provision for this baby who couldn't take care of itself. And the last thing I want you to see is she also demonstrates adoption. She doesn't just care about the baby from a distance. They don't just become pen pals, right? It's not that Pharaoh's daughter just you know, occasionally checks in on the little Hebrew baby to go, hey, do you guys remember that day when I was out, you know, I washed my hair and I found that baby? I wonder what's going on with that baby. Let's find out. Hey, how's that baby? Oh, it's good, right? No, no, no. When the baby is weaned, she adopts the baby. She makes the baby her son and she names him Moses. She gives him his name. Not his birth mother. His adoptive mother gives him his name. The name we know him by was given to him by Pharaoh's daughter. She makes him her son. We have the opportunity to bless people by not just treating them as acquaintances, by not just treating them as other human beings, by not holding them at arm's distance, but by treating other people as family, by bringing them to our dining room table, by bringing them into our homes, by walking alongside them. She demonstrates that beautifully. And she's not a follower of God, but she adopts this boy. The faith, hope, and love, the presence, the courage, the protection right? The compassion, the provision, the adoption, all of these things are things that will inform Moses' life going forward. Listen, his story is a hard one, and it would have been totally possible for us to look at the story of Moses and go, oh, what a tragedy. He was born into a terrible time. He was born into a terrible circumstance. What a tragedy for his mother and for his people. What a terrible thing to have happened that his mom had to put him in the water. But because of the faithfulness Because of the love, the provision, the presence of these three incredible women, this baby is preserved and will go on to be, by the power of God, the deliverer of the Israelite people. They play a role in it. Listen, some of you have tragic stories. I want to just, let's just be honest about it. There are a lot of us for whom Mother's Day is a really exciting day. You've already celebrated a little. You'll probably celebrate a lot more as the day goes on. But there are others of us in this room for whom Mother's Day is very hard. Maybe it's because you've lost your mom. Maybe it's because you desperately want to be a mom and you haven't yet. Maybe it's because you were a mom and you are a mom, but your baby's not here anymore. There are all kinds of reasons why a holiday like this can wreck you. But God redeems it. The story of Moses is not a tragedy. It is not a tragedy. He wasn't raised in an environment of fear. He was raised in an environment of faith. And you and I cannot be defined. We cannot be defined by the tragedies in our stories. All of us have them. All of us have brokenness. All of us have ruin. All of us have tragedy. All of us have moments that we wish went differently. Pastor Richard Dahlstrom in Seattle says that we have to make this transition from if only where we're going, if only this had happened, if only my parents hadn't gotten divorced, if only I hadn't gotten sick, if only I had more money, if only I had a better job, if only those people hadn't been so mean to me, if only this person hadn't died. We have to move from being people of if only to people of thank you God for your redeeming power. And that is possible because of who he is. Because of the grace and the redemptive power of God, you and I do not have to be defined by the tragedies in our lives. We can be refined by them. Not defined by them, refined by them. So if you're here this morning and your heart is broken, if you've been praying that God would give you a child, or if you're grieving at the loss of a parent or a child or a neighbor, and Mother's Day is hard for you, don't let the tragedy define you. 
God is bigger than that. And that speaks to the second thing I want to say this morning. Each and every one of us are, are sitting next to people who have hurt and loss and brokenness and tragedy in their lives. All of us have these things in our lives. And one of the ways in which God will redeem the situation is through you and I shaping the course of those sitting to our right and left. Why? How? Faith, hope, and love on our part, on their behalf. Presence, provision, protection, right? Courage to speak up. Providing for them, whatever it is they need. I loved it in Acts chapter two. It says that the early church sold everything they had and gave to those in need. Well, how did they know who was in need? They actually talked to each other. We can't be a church of individuals that come and sit through a thing. This isn't a show. We're not putting on an, a religious entertainment on Sunday mornings. We are the body of Christ. And we gotta know each other. And so one of the ways that God will redeem the hurt and the pain and the loss and the brokenness is through our presence and through our provision by us demonstrating characteristics of God on his behalf in our spheres of influence. Jacobed, Miriam, Pharaoh's daughter, they got that. They influenced Moses and Moses in turn influences everybody. You don't have to be defined by your story. We all should absolutely be people of compassion we all should be people of peace because our God is a God of peace. But God is redeeming and we can trust him. You know, one of the things, one of the fatal flaws that Pharaoh makes is that he doesn't take God into account. You know what I'm saying? In his plan to eradicate the Jewish people, he has a plan first to oppress them, to enslave them, to secretly kill babies, and then to publicly kill babies. He has this plan to suppress the Israelite people, and the one thing he doesn't factor into the equation is the presence and power of God. You and I should never make that same mistake. There are some of you this morning who feel lost and alone and absolutely confounded as to what to do in your circumstance and it's because you failed to factor in God. Don't make that mistake. There's some crazy stuff that happens in this story. It is amazing that Moses gets training. He gets the training to become the leader God needs him to be that he never could have got as a slave. He actually gets the best training, military training, leadership training, political training in the court of Pharaoh, the best training on the planet at this time. That's incredible. God did that. It's sort of crazy that Pharaoh didn't think about daughters, right? He was fine to let daughters stick around. He wanted to get rid of sons. He didn't mind daughters sticking around. Note that God uses daughters in this story to confound the plans and purposes of Pharaoh. That's how God works. It's incredible that Pharaoh's daughter names this little baby Moses, which means I drew him out, right? It means drawn out. And all she was thinking of at the time was I picked this baby up out of the water. But many years later, this same little baby, grown up into a man, is going to come back into the court of Pharaoh and he's going to introduce himself and he's going to say, my name is Moses and I'm here, what? To draw God's people out. And it was Pharaoh's daughter who picked that stinky name, right? Pharaoh has to look at someone who was named by his own daughter with an implication of drawing people out that she never anticipated. That's the redeeming work of God. And you could look at that and go, it's crazy that all these things have all these crazy details. It's amazing. But listen, you think that's crazy. How crazy is it that the God of the universe knew that we were lost in our sin, that he knew we were broken and could not save ourselves. And so he sent his only son, Jesus, to come to the earth, to put on human form and likeness, to take the sin of the world on himself, 
to die on the cross and shed his blood to pay the penalty for our sin, to rise from the dead, and then extend to all of us who are broken and lost, to extend to us by his grace, resurrection life. You want to talk about craziness? That's crazy. But that's how God works. God works in crazy ways to redeem us, to draw us to himself. Listen, in this story, I want you to know too, the fact that God gives Moses back to his own mom to raise and that she has the opportunity to nurse her own baby in a time where other babies were being killed and get paid for it. God didn't have to do that. God didn't have to do it that way. He doesn't do it out of necessity. He does it because he's nice. God sends his son Jesus to rescue us from sin and death to take on bodily form. He extends to us resurrection life by his grace and through our faith. And he didn't have to do it that way. Why does he call us his sons and daughters? Why does he wipe away our sin? Why will he restore the world and wipe every tear from our eyes? He doesn't have to do any of that. Why does he do it? Because he's good. Because in the demonstration of his goodness, he is glorified. I don't know what you came in here with this morning, but you don't have to be defined by your story. You can be refined by it. And if you're the kind of person in this place who's been following Jesus, but you've been holding other people at arm's length, we have to learn these characteristics that we have an obligation. We have an absolute duty as created beings in the image of God as image bearers. You might go, what does this have to do with call and response? I know I'm a little over my time, but let me tell you. Call and response, that's the theme. You haven't said it. Let me just tell you this. There is an implicit and implied call on the life of every man and every woman to be image bearers of God. In Genesis chapter one, he says, let us make man in our image and in our likeness. And that doesn't mean that God has two arms and two legs. He doesn't, right? When he says, let's make make man in our image, what he's saying is I want them to be representative of who we are, right? We bear his image. And so there is implicit and implied absolute call for us to live lives that demonstrate the characteristics of God. And our God is a God of faith, hope, and love, of presence and protection, of courage. Our God is a God of compassion and provision and adoption. And so when we bring those things into our communities, we are putting him on display. The call is, you've been created in my image. The response is to glorify God with our lives to live lives of compassion and peace, to live a life of faithfulness according to God's call and his purpose. You look at Genesis 1, you could look at Isaiah 43, you could look at Romans 8, 28, right? That God works all things for the good of those, what? Who've been called according to his purpose. What's his purpose? His purpose is to glorify himself. There is a call and there is a response for us to shape the lives of other people, to live lives that have been redeemed and to honor God in that. We don't have to be defined by our stories. We can be refined by them, but we have to take God into account. Will you pray with me this morning? God, I pray that you would move in us, that you would help us to have a sense of who you are as manifested and represented in the lives of these women and that we would see in our own lives. It doesn't matter if we're moms, if we wanna be moms. It doesn't matter if we're fathers or husbands or sons, that all of us have the opportunity to manifest the mothering characteristics of God, of you in our lives. 
And whether we have children or want children, whether we've been blessed with them or you've chosen in your providence to put us on a different course, all of us have the opportunity to shape the lives of others regardless of our circumstance because you are a redeemer. We praise you for that. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.